It's Tuesday, February 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me in studio. Mr. Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. We've got earnings from Home Depot and Shake Shack. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to start with a leadership change, and that is MasterCard getting a new CEO next year, January 1st, 2021. Uh, Michael Miba, who's the chief product officer, is going to become the CEO, and Ajay Banga, who's been CEO for the past decade, is going to be the executive chairman. And the fact that shares of MasterCard are down 4% today, I think, have nothing to do with these announcements. No. Just because um, Meebach's been there for a decade um, under Banga's leadership. This has been a phenomenal stock. He's been CEO for 10 years. Stocks returned more than 1,300% since then. Um, this seems like as smooth a leadership transition as you could possibly hope for if you're a shareholder. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I am a shareholder, and, and to me, this is this is one of those things that we we hope for. You like a clear succession plan laid out there, and the, the reasons are the reasons. You know, I mean, we don't know why Mr. Bonga may be stepping down or is stepping down from that role. I mean, it sounds like it's it's something that's in line with what he wants to do with his life, though. And so, I think the really for me. The the big question for me is going to be what's going to be interesting is if, if Mr. Bonga's views are also Mr. Meebach's views, and what I mean by that is, you know, they've they've run this business to this point with a certain worldview, and there was there was a really good article recently in the Financial Times, I think it was, uh, that that was a focus on. Uh, Mr. Mr. Banga, and, and the title of the, of the article is "Mastercard Chief Speaks Out Against Nationalism and, and Facebook." <laughs> um, but it was a really good article because it gave a lot of, of his opinions and his worldview. This siloed payment systems are stupid. You know, I mean, he's thinking why everybody wants to try to build their own thing. It makes it fragmented and inefficient. He has big questions over Libra, Facebook's intentions, how it's going to make money. Uh, you know, Mastercard was. Part of that initial uh, interest group and pulled out along with a lot of other companies. So it just for me, it's going to be interesting to see going forward if if their two views are are compatible. Because if not, then you would expect to see some strategy changes over the course of the the next I would assume at least decade, unless unless Mr. Meebach just doesn't really do a good job and, and has to step down. I don't anticipate that being the case. He's obviously very familiar with the business, uh, but that really for me is the big question: is are their two views compatible? Because that'll that'll dictate a lot of. The the strategy over the course of the coming decade. So, not that we're focused on the short term, but let's talk about why the stock is down today. Sure. Um, revised guidance regarding the potential impact of coronavirus. You're a shareholder. What did you think of it? I mean, to me, that it seems logical. I mean, what we're seeing at this point with the coronavirus is a, a ultimately a global slowdown, and, and it's going to be hard to fully quantify. Um, and, and I think a lot of companies are really just trying to get a grip on. Um, what quarter one is going to look like, and what quarter two could potentially look like. Uh, so, I, I mean, to me, you know, that that only makes sense. I mean, if the global economy slows down, then that has a material impact on Mastercard's business because they facilitate the movement of a lot of that money. Um, it, but but it doesn't it doesn't impact the the business itself, right? It's it's just a matter of 
uh, slowing growth versus accelerating growth. And if we hit a period of slowing growth because of this uh, temporary, albeit scary, situation, then then so be it. But it doesn't change my view on owning the business. And uh, this is certainly one where you know, and Peter Lee, uh, Peter Lynch always says the best the best stock to buy is probably one you already own. Uh, I think Mastercard falls into that camp. You know, I mean, I think if if you saw this company uh, get get shellacked on on greater market concerns, it's one that I would certainly consider adding to. We'll get to slowing growth when we talk about Shake Shack, but let's hit Home Depot first. Uh, fourth that quarter was profit. A nice little gut shot right there. <laughs> I like I'm, not, that. I'm not trying to take shots. No, at Shake I know. Shack. I'm just we will get to that. But, good, um, <laughs> um, Home Depot's fourth quarter profits look good. Their revenue was a little light, given the revenue being light and the market environment this week, and the fact that I don't own Home Depot yet. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Was kind of hoping that this stock was going to get smacked in the mouth today. <laughs> <laughs> and it is not. It's up about one two percent. So it's it's on my list. I'll buy it at some point. But uh, I I really was kind of hoping. Once I saw the report come out, I was like, ooh, maybe this can be like. I mean, gosh, with the. <laughs> God, but, uh, like eight percent down. This 10%? has become our Visa and Mastercard. We sat there for two, three years talking about Visa, and now we're going to be talking about Home Depot every quarter. Exactly. I, I too do not own shares, and, and look at this company and ask myself every quarter, why don't I own shares? And I haven't come up with a good answer yet, Chris. I mean, to your point, it was it was a good quarter, and, and I think it's important to note too that the revenue appeared a little bit light, but that was also based on an extra week last year. And so, actually, if you look at it, they they did grow modestly from from the previous year. Uh, and there was strength in the average ticket. The average ticket was up four point four percent. Very modest growth in transactions, uh, just under one percent. But I mean that that led to a good earnings uh, report, good uh, earnings per share figures for the year. Uh, at ten dollars and twenty-five cents versus the ten dollars and three cents they predicted just a quarter ago, um, so I mean, I mean I, it, this is a company that just keeps on doing what they say they're going to do. They play in a really attractive market, and I tell you one thing: they they continue to do quarter in and quarter out is these big ticket comp transactions. These big tickets are over a thousand dollars. They represent. Twenty percent of the company's U.S. sales growth there was was up double digits again for the quarter. Now, double digits could mean just ten percent, but regardless, selling those big ticket items, they they seem to be really good at doing it. Sales uh, per retail square foot four hundred fifty five dollars for the year, highest in the company's history. It's it's really hard to knock what they're doing. And so for me, it's finding the red flags and going through the call. I was searching coronavirus in China and and you know, it's a little bit surprised. It's not a big mention there. I mean, they talked about it very briefly uh, in the context of the supply chain and in regard to the first quarter, they're like, hey, listen, most of our stuff, we've already got it here. It's already been shipped or it's en route. But they did notify. They they did they did you know they did say this is a fluid situation. It's changing day by day, and they are looking at Q2 and Q3 and four and seeing what the potential effects may be. But for now, I mean, it seems like the business is still um, firing on all cylinders. Grew the dividend again. I mean, this thing pays six dollars a year just to hold the stock. I mean, it's really hard to argue against that at this point. It is. And to go back to something you had said about management and their ability to deliver, I think one of the reasons the stock, or I should say one more reason the stock is not falling today, is 
despite the fact that management talked about this is going to be a big year for Home Depot in terms of the money they're investing in the yeah. business, they're t- you know with with other businesses and other management teams that would scare some investors off. But I think this management team has proven they're going to invest it wisely, and I think that's again one more reason why people have confidence in it. Yeah, I think so. And I mean. It, it... They're still calling for $16 million in operating profit for the year, which is modest growth from a year ago, but it's growth nonetheless. And when you talk about the money that they're investing, I think it's reasonable to look at the next five years and think that those investments will start paying off. They've been investing a lot in their uh, professional customer, right? I mean, the big focus on the do it yourselfers like, like you and me, but they also have uh, this tremendous pro business and they are building out. Uh, an entirely new and separate experience for those pro customers to be able to come in there and, and do their work and get the stuff that they need. Um, and and I, I think that's only going to help their cause as time goes on. Another interesting data point I saw, just going back to the dividend for a second, they raised the dividend this year, 10% increase in the quarterly dividend. That's 11 consecutive years with a dividend increase, which is kind of Surprising to me, and that I thought it would have been more. But you know, we talk about dividend aristocrats a lot. Lowe's is on that list. Home Depot is clearly not, and they're not going to be for a while. But I think it's also reasonable to assume that they'll continue raising that dividend for the foreseeable future. Because I'd imagine they want to be on that list too at some point. At some point, but it's a nice reminder that at one point in time, Bob Nardelli was running this company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, the Nardelli, years. <laughs> the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah. um, shares of Shake Shack are down fourteen percent today. If fourth quarter profits came in much higher than expected, and if that were the only thing that mattered, the stock would probably be up or at least flat. But same store sales were down three and a half percent. Um, sales grew 21%, but that's lower than expected. That's actually the slowest sales growth they've had in a quarter since they went public. So, uh, I don't know. How, how concerned should people be about this business? Well, first and foremost, thank you for not saying same shack sales, because that's a tongue twister, I think, that just doesn't really work well for podcasts. It's a little, I wish it's a, they would just abandon it all together. It's a little too cute. It, it is a little yeah, well said. Uh, it, I got, so, we, we have a little connection with Shake Shack, and we went and we taped a market foolery on location one yes. day in New York City. It was a lot of fun. They were super to us. We got some great food. Uh, that said, it's always confounded me as to why this stock has done so well for so long. I mean, it's 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 a burger joint, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it is it's a it's a burger joint. They make pretty good food, but I mean, I don't know that this is something that necessarily has uh, the the growth potential of, of something like maybe a Chipotle. I mean, I think honestly, you look at the stock, and I mean, before today, it was trading at over well over 100 times earnings, which makes Chipotle look like a value play today. Um, but to your point, I mean, I mean, the numbers were were not really very good. I mean, traffic was down close to five and a half percent. Comps down. They've seen a slowdown in delivery. And what's more is the delivery question for them. I mean, as as they integrate more with Grubhub in this relationship that they formed with Grubhub, it's going to cause a lot of lumpiness. It sounds like this year as well, uh, and something that they can't necessarily quantify at this point in the year. Uh, so, I mean, there there are. I, I think you probably see this stock pull back uh, some more as time goes on because you do have to wonder. They just opened up the most restaurants in one year that they've ever opened up, and whether it was a direct result or an indirect result, traffic was down. 
And so then this becomes a demand story. It's you start asking yourself how much demand is really there. I don't. I mean, I do wonder if maybe this isn't kind of like a Bojangles story in that they are a good restaurant with a loyal cult following, but maybe they can't quite fully grow out of that East Coast footprint that that they that they currently reside in right i mean that's where they were born that's a, that's it's a new york story and it seems like all of the bulls that i know on this time are up in new york anyway so maybe we're missing something there but yeah i don't i don't know that i have a lot of optimism for this company at least in the near term the stock just seems just so outrageously priced based on the fundamentals well and to your point about the footprint um, you can have a quarter like this, where same store sales are down three and a half percent, if you've got a massive national, you know, if Starbucks put up that kind of quarter, or McDonald's for that matter, I mean, in McDonald's case, that'd be pretty bad, but it's a national thing. Part of Shake Shack's job over the next decade, I would argue, and I think you would agree, is that they need to prove they can grow nationally. Yeah. And when they're putting up negative comps on a regional basis, that is the opposite argument. That's, That's You guys should just stick to where you are, and you'll do fine there, but don't try and go past the... Don't go west in the Mississippi. And I think that you may be... I think that you may be onto something there. And I mean, it does feel like burgers are very regional, and you hit one part of the country where it's all about Whataburger, and then you've got Smash Burger, and you've got In and Out Burger, and you've got Five Guys, and you've got Shake Shack. So they're all good in their own right. But I mean, it, it, they they can't all just keep growing to to the moon. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, they've got they've got like what I don't know, two hundred and fifty something something like that stores. I mean, they they're not going to be able. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's like three hundred eighty. I don't know. It's, some, it's somewhere in that general neighborhood. But the point is, I think that while they have robust growth aspirations, I think if if you think this is going to be a Chipotle like story where they have twenty five hundred stores, it, it I don't know, man. I mean, to me that just sounds really optimistic. I would bet against that. Um, another thing to note, just for this coming year, if you are interested in the stock, keep this in mind because you may find a better entry point. Because the revenue guidance that they laid out for the year also includes. This temporary closure of two New York City Shake Shacks, and and that matters because those are those are two of their busiest stores, and so just just keep that in mind. That I mean, the market is is thinking, hey, that's going to be something else that that's not that's going to weigh on the business in the near term, but that will be that will go away. There will be a catalyst in the back half of the year that could play out in, in investors' favor. That remains to be seen, but but it's it's worth noting regardless because it's going to be those two stores are going to be closed for a combined fourteen to eighteen weeks, and that's going to be a lot of money that they lose in sales from that. Our mailing address is 2000 Duke Street in Alexandria, Virginia. We got a very nice letter from Daniel Good in Ireland, and he included a couple of magnets, which was very nice. So, thank you for Extremely that, Daniel. Thoughtful. And a very kind letter with some very nice thoughts. But he had a couple of questions I thought we could hit real quick before we wrap up. First, he asked, what are your thoughts on the European market for 2020 and in general? I know you mainly focus on U.S. equities. However, do either of you have holdings, or would you recommend it as a place to diversify your portfolio other than emerging markets and U.S. stocks? I really like this question because it's a reminder that we do tend to talk in terms of those two 
groups. It's like, yeah, there's U.S. stocks, and then there's emerging markets, and you know there are opportunities in Europe. But I, uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't, I don't really think of them as an investor when I'm. I I tend to stick close to home when I'm looking at. My investment opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I, I do too. I view I, I, as I view investing as, as more of a big picture. You know, why focus on specific markets when you can focus on businesses that cover many markets? And I mean, the world is a lot smaller today thanks to technology, and uh, I mean these intricate supply chains and uh, so forth. So for me. Um, I, you know, we don't necessarily have to say, well, I've got U.S. exposure now. I need European exposure and emerging markets exposure because, frankly, I've already got a healthy amount of European exposure in my own portfolio. But they aren't necessarily European domiciled companies either. I mean, now, I mean, I'll use a few examples here. I mean, Autodesk is one, um, and that's in the business of, of AutoCAD software. Uh, that almost half of their revenue comes from their Europe, Middle East, and Africa segment. Ansys, another one that's in simulation software, very strong presence in Germany and France, generate a lot of sales from Europe. And another company, PTC, with 35% or so of their revenue coming from Europe, with a big focus on Germany as well. And those are all software. Companies that are focused, uh, you know, on on that AutoCAD and and, and uh, simulation style software uh, offerings. PTC and Ansys have actually partnered up, and Autodesk. I think a lot of people are out there familiar with that name. So, I mean, those are just three examples of software companies that, yeah, they're U.S. investments, but they're really also European investments. You get a nice, nice exposure to the European economy there. Um, I, you look at big tech, things like Facebook, Google, Amazon. We love those companies here. I think it's fair to assume that they're going to be uh, under even more of a microscope in Europe here in the coming years. And, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. But, um, I mean, those are businesses that, of course, give you a lot of exposure uh, to the European economy as well. So, uh, I mean, looking for pure plays there, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I don't necessarily view investing that way anymore because we don't have to. Uh, China, very much the same thing. I mean, I don't really look for pure play China um, investment ideas. I just look for good businesses with a healthy exposure to the Chinese economy, and it seems to be working out. Uh, Daniel's a university student, and he also writes, uh, since I'm 21 years old, I don't know whether it's better to invest in dividend stocks like Pfizer or growth stocks like Virgin Galactic. Um, this, well, Daniel. <laughs> well, so, but this reminds me of uh, the the most recent uh, YouTube uh, live Q and A that we did. You, me, and and Bill Mann. We were talking about blue chip companies, and got a, a not this specific in terms of Pfizer and Virgin Galactic, but we get a similar question in terms of. Um, sort of, to what extent should you allocate your portfolio towards growth, particularly if you're a younger investor, um, or dividend? And I, you know, I, I look at his question and think, yeah, there's ideally you want to have at least somewhere between ten and twenty stocks in your portfolio, and there's room for both. I want it all, right? It is a very interesting dilemma because. We talk about when you're younger and you have all of this time in front of you, and you can you can take on more risk, and and a lot of times that risk is is in the form of growth type stocks, maybe businesses that are less proven, less profitable. They're not going to be dividend payers. 
By the same token, the whole idea behind dividend payers is you want to hold on to those things as long as you can, right? So 10, 20, 30, 40 years if you can. I mean, Home Depot, I think, was a great example. If you're owning Home Depot and they're giving you six bucks a year just to hang on to that share, well, you can do the math and see over the course of a decade, two decades, how, how meaningful that can be. And, and so, I, I mean, the answer, as, as you said, is you, you want them both. Um, I think it's, it's just looking to find a healthy mix and not really committing to one or the other. But recognizing the fact that while, Daniel, you're younger and you're in that grow your wealth stage of life, um, eventually you'll get to that protect your wealth stage of life. And, and it's really neat when you get to protecting your wealth to already have that more or less unassailable, uh, just bedrock dividend core in your portfolio that, that has already been so hard at work for you. Because, I mean, eventually, you hang on to those things long enough, I mean, in theory, your cost basis becomes zero, and that's pretty sweet. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it's an either-or. I think it is both, and I think it's just really uh, finding that, that healthy mix and those, taking advantage of those opportunities when you can. Well, and as you and Bill Mann and I talked about uh, on YouTube, Fortunately for all investors, uh, those dividend uh, stocks are a lot more attractive now. Yeah. Um, or you certainly have a lot more options, and the businesses appear to be more dynamic than when you and I were Daniel's age. And it's like, yeah, they're they're blue chip, they're dividend payers. It's IBM. It's not going anywhere. It's safe. It's steady. But you know, guess what? Apple. Is a dividend stock, and look how yeah. that's done over the last couple of years. It does feel like you don't have to sacrifice capital gains for dividends anymore. I mean, that used to be, I think, the perception was that if you're going to hold a dividend stock, well, the stock price isn't going to really do much, but you get that that dividend check every uh, every quarter. It, it does feel like dividend payers are more dynamic, and you don't have to necessarily sacrifice capital gains anymore. Microsoft, I think, another great example. Um, in a lot of these companies, Microsoft included. Again, we go back to that dividend aristocrat list. A lot of these companies want to be on that list, and the only way to get there is to keep growing that dividend year in and year out for at least twenty-five consecutive years. So you find a lot of those companies that are that are close to that, and um, man, there's there's a lot of good ones from which to choose for sure. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.